Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Adam Dorsey, a psychologist in Silicon Valley and the host of Super Psyched, a podcast dedicated to supercharging your life. Each episode contains fun, high-quality interviews with experts looking at psychology from all angles. Super Psyched is your tool to get more of what you want in your life and less of what you don't. These days, there is understandably a lot of talk and a lot of fear about the future of jobs. Speculations are plentiful and some are downright grim. The questions abound. What will the future bring as it relates to employment? How will my children's work life look? You may even be thinking, damn, what will my own work life look like in a few years? The truth is nobody knows, but a good place to form hypotheses about the future may exist in thoughtful analysis of current research, as well as looking deeply at history. It is crucial that we cool our heads and listen to thought leaders who have real world experience, plus those who have given deep and objective thought to the matter. And that is why I'm so grateful to have had this conversation with just such a person. Jeff Wald is the founder of Work Market, as well as several other technology companies, including Spinback, which was eventually sold to Salesforce. Jeff is an angel investor who holds an MBA from Harvard University and an MS and a BS from Cornell. He's also the author of a book I found helpful and informative called The End of Jobs, The Rise of On-Demand Workers and Agile Corporations and Jeff and I geek out to the future of jobs as he sees it. As you will hear, Jeff draws deeply on research and history, and he gives his take on the skills that will be necessary in the future, the relevance of college education, jobs on the rise, jobs on their way out, jobs that will change, and his thoughtful way in on where we are heading in general. So listen in as Jeff and I talk about the future of jobs. Jeff Wald, Welcome to Super Psyched. I am super psyched to be here, Adam. Let us dive in. <laughs> awesome. I'm so glad that you wrote this book. I have a, actually a son who's just about to enter college. And obviously, your work is relevant to me, all the more so relevant to younger people whose lives at work are going to be dramatically different from anything we could conjure up in our imagination. Just 20 years ago, if somebody had even talked about Uber as a thing, we would have had askance glances because that was not a thing. And 20 years from now, we have no idea, but you very brilliantly decided to give a $1 million contest to anybody who comes closest to hitting the mark amongst your thought leaders. 10 people? Oh, 10 million. 10 million. Yeah, the $10 million prize I put up. Wow. Talk about putting your money where your mouth is. A $10 million prize to anybody. And that's a brilliant part of this book called The End of Jobs. I'm calling this that episode, The Future of Jobs. But let's dive in. What got you into this compelling topic? Well, I'll say this. I had started a company called Work Market, which is enterprise software that enables companies to organize, manage, and pay their on-demand workers. And we were lucky enough to have the company bought by ADP. We had raised $100 million in venture. We had a big exit. And through the development of work market, through its sale to ADP, I had the pleasure of going to conferences and giving speeches and being on panels. And I will tell you, the thing that drove me to write the book was annoyance that people at conferences and on panels would say things. And I'm like, that has a 0% chance of coming true. I mean, look, whenever we make 
predictions, whenever we take that chance and try to peer into the future, we have a higher probability of being incorrect. I accept that. But if you're making predictions that actually have no foundation in fact, no foundation in data, no foundation in how companies actually engage workers, and you're in the public square making statements, I have an issue with it. I have an issue, by the way, in any context of people making statements in the public square that they know to be false or know can't be true. But in this context, there are very clear paths we can follow. And so if we look at history, if we look at data, if we talk to the CHROs, the heads of human resources, the people actually engage in workforce planning, we can get not a perfect crystal ball, of course not, but we can have a high probability of having predictions that at least have a semblance of what the future will look like. And I think that's important. And so then I sat down and spent a couple of years researching and writing the book. And it was your disgust with this information and fake news that really compelled you to say, I need to set the record mm-hmm. straight as possible, given the infinite trajectories, but I need it to at least be a hypothesis. And if we look at the word hypothesis, it means an intelligent guess rather than just a stupid, but maybe soundbitey guess. And I will say further, Adam, it's people obviously have a specific agenda. And so they're out there pushing a specific narrative, even if that narrative has a 0% chance of coming true or to be more specific is false. Like it is definitively false. And so we need to equip people to counter and to say, oh, that's an interesting point of view. What data do you have to back up? assertion? Because I'm all for changing my mind if you present me new data. If you present information I didn't know, interesting. Well, maybe now I'm going to swing to your point of view. But for me, having built one of the largest companies in the on-demand labor space, everybody in 2010, when I started work market, said by 2020, 50% of the workforce is going to be on-demand. And I remember thinking, well, that's not going to happen. And as you made your way through the 2010s, people would still say 50% by 2020. It started getting closer and closer to 2020, and it hadn't really moved that much. In 2010, people started saying, by 2030. <laughs> and that was when I kind of threw my hands up. I think the first time I heard that, I was like, you must... No, it wasn't true then. It's not true now. And here's why that will never occur. And maybe something in my thesis is incorrect. Challenge the thesis. And then we can debate and discuss where on-demand labor may be in X period of time. But just found it very frustrating. When I was playing soccer with my three-year-old, who was then three years old, he's now 14. We had this joke because he was constantly changing the rules to soccer. We called it Brenny Rules Soccer. And when adults engage in Brenny Rules Soccer... That's not great. It's okay for a three-year-old, not okay for a thought leader who has, may have an agenda and may actually send people down a fool's errand or sending off these red herrings that could actually cause catastrophic thinking and increase the anxiety out in the atmosphere. Let's just, before we even get into the future of jobs, let's talk about something that you talked about in the book, which is the history of jobs, the LEC, the Lifetime Employment Contract, various things, things that preceded it. You really went deep into the history of jobs, which I thought was an important service to provide context towards the future. Let's just spend a couple minutes there before we dive into the future. Well, I think that history is super important. Everything is slightly different as we look to the future. There are things that are going to happen more quickly. The technology is different. But history tends to rhyme, and there's a reason for that. So am I saying the fourth industrial revolution will be exactly as the first three? Of course not. Is it going to look somewhat like them? Yeah, it will. 
But the most interesting thing, Adam, that I kind of learned was this notion of a job. That's only about 200 years old that we've had this thing called a job. This is not an ingrained part of the human experience that we leave our home and go and work for somebody else for a salary, whether that's hourly, an annual wage, or a gig job. That is new in a construct. It started in the first industrial revolution when we started changing how society was really structured. And now you had a different type of person, the worker, that went and took a job. And how that worker's power has changed over time is super important because fundamentally, industrial revolutions are just about supply and demand. They're about supply and demand for the products that are being made more cheaply and more efficiently and therefore in greater quantity. And they're supply and demand for the workers doing the tasks. And when a new technology comes on stream, the amount of workers you need to get the same output drops. And therefore, the worker's bargaining power drops. And so what have those tensions been, that undulating power balance between companies and workers? What are the different variables that influence it? Technological change for the company, the organization of capital for the company. And on the worker side, regulation, unions, social safety net, these are all counterbalancing forces How are they going to play out in the fourth industrial revolution? Well, let's first understand that framework using history. Now let's think about the fourth industrial revolution, AI and robotics, using these frameworks that have served as well for 200 years. Utterly fascinating. I often think about the industrial revolution. I think about the advent of the light bulb, how we were able to have longer days. I think about the dissolution of the common denominator that used to be the family farm or the family business. We have these last names like Baker, a family of Bakers, Smith, family of Smiths. And now you're saying that there is a fourth wave. Can you just identify the three waves that precede this current fourth wave? And then we'll we'll go into the future. Of course. So we have mechanization, electrification, and computerization. Mechanization is moving from hand power, like me tilling the soil with my hand or weaving something with my hands, to machine power, the spinning jenny, the weaving loom. Those of you kind of, there are archetypes for the first industrial revolution. The second is electrification. And that is electricity running through those machines so that they can operate in a much more efficient manner. And in the electrification phase, we see the growth of large corporations. So where you see U.S. Steel and Standard Oil come in. And the third industrial revolution, which we're really just ending right now, quite frankly, is computerization, the ability for computers to create an entire digital world and to create an information infrastructure that scales. I just am keeping a ledger, a piece of paper and a pen, the way people, accounts used to do a ledger, that is infinitely more difficult than going to QuickBooks and putting the information and being able to share it quickly and change things very quickly. Brilliant. And And so those are our three. The fourth, just to finish your question, is... AI and robotics. We leave the robotics off a lot right now because AI right now is kind of the key buzzword since chat GPT came out about nine months ago or commercially available, I should say. But robotics is another important part. And where does the internet fit in with all this? Is somewhere in later computerization? It was, yeah, later computerization. It's really, I mean, it's taking computerization and making it shareable, right? There's the QuickBooks that I just have on my laptop and then there's QuickBooks online. And how would you describe this exact moment we're in? Where are we now? We are in the early stages, which I qualify in the three stages of an industrial revolution as the freak out stage. We're in the freak out stage. And in the freak out stage, people freak out. 
they go, oh my gosh, the new technology is coming. All the jobs are going to go. Even though that has never, and I don't use the words never and always frequently, but it has never happened. Do jobs change? Dumb jobs go? But the notion that, oh my God, all the jobs are going to go. What are we going to do? I don't want to call it ridiculous because you never know what's going to happen this time, but it is highly, highly, highly unlikely. It has never happened before. So but we're in that freakout phase. So given the fact that you've thought about this deeply, you've had major thought leaders contribute to your book, each of whom is competing for a $10 million prize 17 years from now, not a small gain if they get it, and all of which were erudite descriptions of a possible future from where I sat, where do you think we're going? I think we're going to hit the second phase and then the third phase. The second phase, by the way, is economic and social dislocation, which is to say that there is going to be upheaval. You are starting to see it slowly. It takes time. And it's a very, very important point is that these things take time. They do not happen right away. And we can get into some examples about that. The ATM example, the trucking example. But over a 15 to 20 year period, you will see some job losses. You'll see a lot more jobs change than lost, but you start to see it. And when that happens, if we don't have the right social mobility, if we don't have the right economic mobility, you get to see populism and nationalism, all kinds of things that historically have led to very bad societal outcomes. But as with each other time, we will get through that and we'll get to the third stage, which is the stage of more jobs having been created. And it's just a job of increased abundance because the unit factor cost of production has dropped because of the new technologies. So when we think about these things, it's important to understand that over the 200-year history of work, there are really only three kind of consistent data points. Hmm. Things that happen basically every single year. And that is, one, as a society, we work fewer hours. 200 years ago, the average person worked 3,000 hours. People think now the average person works 2,000 hours, but that's actually incorrect. The average person in the United States works 1,760 hours and slowly, minute by minute, year by year, that goes down. That's one, almost uninterrupted over 200 years. Two, the number of jobs increases, almost uninterrupted. The number of jobs every year in a society increases, almost uninterrupted. Three, the standard of living, the cost to get that same basket of goods goes down, mm-hmm. right? So we work fewer hours, we have more jobs, and the stuff we need to survive, to thrive, becomes less expensive, which is always fascinating to me because when we think about history as humans, we tend to romanticize the past, fret and complain about the present, and be really scared about the future. No, nothing would indicate historically that that should be the case because every year it's actually gotten better. That is absolutely incredible. So hours go down, number of jobs go up, the standard of living goes up. And yet all we hear about throughout word of mouth, the media, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, is doom and gloom for the most part. And you're here to say, let's actually think about this. Let's actually use our brains try to smell the trends and think about the past using that, as you said, beautifully as an echo for what's going on today. And let's be honest about what the past was. was, Oh, things used to be much better in the 50s and 60s. Oh my gosh, no. Watch Mad Max. Definitively no. Maybe for some very, very narrow group 
of workers right. in a specific demographic, maybe lifetime employment, company pension plans for life, and all these other things, maybe, maybe, maybe. But for society, not even close. Right. I mean, not even remotely close. So we romanticized the past, but it really wasn't that great. Right. So let's go into the future. If you were talking to a group of 18-year-olds who are just about to begin college, what skills would you say are going to be important for the future of jobs? Well, let's challenge the predicate here, Adam. Why do they have to go to college? (laughs) Let's talk to a group of 18-year-olds, period, and ask... (laughs) What are the now, look, skills that they I, would need? Right. I do think that college is still a good bet. Is it a bet that every person should make? Should we be pushing everyone to go to college? Absolutely not. You know what the biggest on-demand jobs we have right now, where the biggest supply and demand gaps exist, where we are missing the most workers? Where? Electricians, plumbers, tradespeople. We are millions of workers short across all of those different industries. Millions are short. And those electrician offshored. No, they cannot be offshored. An electrician is making a six-figure salary. Easily. Pretty quickly in their career. And so, look, do I think that people should go to college if they feel like that is the right return on investment? College is expensive. It is a big amount of time. I obviously, and I think you would agree, find it an unbelievably enriching experience in a number of vectors. And it was the right thing for me. Doesn't mean it's the right thing for everybody. And so when you talk specifically about the kind of skills that are in demand, I think about things that can't be offshore. I think about things that have a low probability of being automated. Because if something has repetitive high volume tasks, as we talk about in the labor economist world, repetitive high volume tasks, the same task over and over again, it eventually gets automated. I don't care if that's a white collar task, if it's a manufacturing task, it's automated. And so if your job involves the same thing over and over and over again, It has a high probability, but that's an important word here, high probability. The job of waiter and waitress, 3.3 million people employed as waiters and waitresses in the United States of America. That job does not need to exist. That job can be fully automated. I mean, think about that job for a second. They walk over to you, they give you a piece of paper, lists out what it is that the establishment has to sell at what price. You tell them what you want. They still in many places, write that down on a piece of paper and walk it into a kitchen, deliver it to someone that prepares your food. Well, that can be electronic. You can sit down, scan something, do it on your phone. AI can give you better recommendations on a wine pairing, or the AI could ask you all kinds of different things. 20 years ago, we could have eliminated all waiters and waitresses, but we didn't. Why? That's a terrible consumer experience. I go into one restaurant and all there is are people and maybe even a robot bringing my food out, by the way. Why for that over a place where I can have a conversation with somebody, hey, what do you love here and this and that? We could automate, but we don't. That's why I say high probability of being automated. Yeah, I love R2-D2, but I definitely don't want R2-D2 as my food server, let alone C3PO. So which jobs do we lose? Which jobs change? And what jobs may arise? So I'll start with the last, which is which jobs may arise. Nobody knows some of them. I can promise you in 20 years, there will be hundreds of thousands of people employed in a job category that you and I could not come up with right now. Much like 20 years ago, if I said to you, hey, everybody's going to be employed at social media marketing managers, you would have said, what now? Why would anybody need that? Who? <laughs> it's something I've well, we got for myself. Yes, we got them. Yep. And so that is always the most interesting thing. And I always, when I give my speech on the future work, have a big question mark 
on kind of the balance of the job because we anticipate 10 to 15% of jobs that will be displaced because of the fourth industrial revolution. So in the United States, we're talking about 25 to 30 million jobs that are going to get displaced over a 20-year period. There will be new jobs that will be created, industries that exist today. Whether those industries are in AI or in robotics, I mean, right now, that is the hottest job skill, right? AI, large language model, programmers, diapers. Which job I posted for one of my companies the other day? AI Wrangler. Wow. It's a job right now. And an AI Wrangler helps train a bot not to be racist and to say inappropriate things because that's actually a job. If you had asked me two years ago, would that be a job? I'd be like, what? What the heck is that? It's a job right now. We just hired one. Turns AI out Wrangler. the AI is a rodeo in the wild, wild west, and we need to wrangle yes. these things. Yeah. Our That's CTO amazing. came, he's like, we need an AI Wrangler. And I literally said, oh, what? <laughs> oh, what? And he explained it to me because bot will not understand. The AI will not understand social norms. That's brilliant. Or just decency. Anyway, but jobs that have repetitive high volume tasks. So you can think about a lot of jobs in the accounting space, in the legal space, a lot of jobs in the administrative tasks that go into work. You will see a continued trend on automation in the manufacturing context. And we can talk about the manufacturing sector in the United States for as long as you'd like, but people like to vilify environmental policy or trade policy. The manufacturing sector exists in the United States the way it does. The greatest variable is simply automation. We produce a tremendous amount more of the manufacturing country than we did 20 years ago. We just do it with way fewer jobs. That's Amazing. Let's actually do a callback to college. What is the value of college in the future as you see it? Look, one of the many reasons why this country is so exceptional is its workforce and ability to be entrepreneurial, to be creative, to think broadly. I do think those are learned traits through debate and discussion. And I do think college is the best place to be able to sit among people with different points of view, to challenge, debate, and discuss, and to open the aperture, if you will, and mature in your point of view, in your intellectual process, and in your exposures. And so do I think that fewer people could go to college than do today? Yes. We have 32% of the U.S. labor force has a college degree. I think that's too high. I would never make that choice for somebody if that's the choice they want to make. God bless. But do I think as a society, we are de-emphasizing optimal paths for people? Probably. But do I think it will play a very important role in the future? Of course, just not for 32% of the labor force. Well, you and I were in the green room. We were talking about the intrinsic value of being educated, being informed versus the extrinsic value. And you're kind of alluding to that now that there is an intrinsic value to being a thinking person and some of those thoughts that are fortified through the dialectical in the college experience. And I think that's a really good point. It really kind of makes up for the notion that, okay, AI will be writing a lot of people's papers, but it will not be moving my mouth when I'm having an actual intellectual discussion. It's true. And that debate is very, very powerful, right? We talked in the beginning about you present me new information, I want to change my ideas. I want to change my beliefs. But frankly, I mean, ideas are much easier to change than beliefs, but we owe it to ourselves and to our society to have those discussions. And so when people would say, well, say to me, and I get hear this a lot, how are you still friends with that person? They believe this and they believe that. 
I'll say I'm friends with them sometimes because of that. Like I want to hear their point of view and I won't cut them off because of 1% of the way that they think does not align with what I think about that. Do I think that they're foolish? Do I respect them? And do I want to hear their point of view and debate and discuss? Absolutely. It's a time-honored tradition to have these two points of view that may be contradictory rubbing up against each other in a very ideally respectful way. And the sparks from that interaction can be far greater, especially if either or both of those parties goes in with that mindset of, I'm willing to change my mind. Mm -hmm. I'm here to learn something. Adam, I'll give it to you in a different context. I am a company builder. I have founded a number of tech firms. I will always hire people that have a very different point of view, but I will also always work on other projects. And people will say, well, I don't understand. You raised all this money for venture capitalists. How come they're letting you write a film script? And I say, because I'm better (laughs) when I context shift and I'll be struggling with what to do and how we architect something from a technology standpoint. And I'll go, you know what, guys? I'm just going to go write my film script for like a couple hours. And I'll come back and I'll go, I got it. Figure it out. (laughs) As you're talking, I'm thinking about two of the great thought leaders who I recently interviewed, one of whom was Jeremy Lee, the dean of Stanford School of Design, who said basically... Great ideas never come about in a vacuum. You have to be exposed to two seemingly disparate ideas and put them together and see what they create. And then I'm thinking about Dory Clark, who you may know, the author of The Long Game. She teaches at Duke School of Business. She's brilliant. And she's writing a musical right now, a, a, a spy lesbian musical, kind of think James Bond style, if you can imagine music and the main star being a lesbian. And I think that is so important to do what you're doing. It's a time-honored tradition, whether it's Ben Franklin, Leonardo da Vinci, any of these people got their great ideas by sojourning out from their cubicle and exposing themselves to other ways of thinking. Well, look, everybody should do what Dory Clark does on a number (laughs) of fronts because she is fantastic. She's been a friend for a long time. And just a wonderful, wonderful human. But yeah, man, you got to like... And I tell my team, we have no meeting Fridays here at my new company. And on those Fridays, I say, look, no meetings, internal, external. Catch up on your stuff because you all have very specific KPIs. You know what you need to get done. Or use that time to work on something else. Like write a book, start another company, advise other companies. Do what you want on that day. Assuming you have your stuff done, because I am paying you. <laughs> I think we need to accomplish. But if you got your stuff done, do whatever the heck you want on Friday and Saturday. I love that idea so much. One of the ideas I give my clients is think of, let's say they're a Googler. I say, don't think of Google as Google.com. Think of it as Google.edu, a place where you're being paid to learn and kick ass for the company. Of course, you've got to do what your job description asks of you. But also see it as a parkour where you're becoming stronger and better in general. I know that the 10% time was supposed to make that a reality. And yet people have told me who work there, yeah, that 10% time is aspirational. We don't really have that. But if you're able to at least look at your current job that is in front of you and ask yourself, how can I become smarter? How can I grow the vocational muscle that's important to me while I'm doing this and kicking ass for the company? We all win. That said, I'm going to go back to the 18-year-olds, the proverbial 18-year-olds, not necessarily going to college. What are the skill sets? If you were tasked with designing a parkour, a vocational parkour that would really help people with vocational skills or perhaps personal attributes that will make them rock the future and arrive at 2040 in a really good place, what would be some of those 
You're not going to love this answer, but look, I'm going to use data that comes from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which is actually an amazing, amazing place. I can second only to ADP's Research Institute in terms of gathering data in the workplace. But they would tell us where are the jobs with the greatest supply and demand imbalances going to occur. And I direct people I know and love towards those places because it is all supply and demand when you think about these things. And the answer to that question is definitively learn how to code, learn how to write code, and you will never go hungry. Like, That's amazing. It will be a massive supply and demand imbalance for a generation. And we are churning out a tremendously larger number of coders. And AI with AI co-pilots is making the coding easier. So it is possible that supply and demand balance changes over time. Unknown, but that is the language of the future. In regards to this book, I would say the ATM example or the trucking example is probably the thing that brings it home most for people. Bring it in. And look, I'll I'll do the ATM because it's just the easiest. Like The ATM was invented in 1969. That was the first ATM that was ever deployed. Remember, took in 1969 in Rockville Center, New York, in the Citibank branch. And people sat there and they go, wow, what the heck is this thing? Adam, it took (laughs) 25 years for that ATM to appear in every single bank branch in the United States. 1995, 25 years. Now, when the bank branch was fully proliferated, what do you think everybody said about 500,000 bank teller jobs in the United States? I remember in your book, they thought they were going to disappear. They're going to disappear. And yet, there are 600,000 bank tellers employed in the United States today. Look, is the bank teller involved in a job that has a bunch of repetitive high-volume tasks? The answer is yes. Are those repetitive high-volume tasks 100% of that job? The answer is no. It's about 50%. And therefore, we expect to see about 50% job loss. And that is what happened. You go, whoa, whoa, whoa. What do you mean that's what happened? It actually grew by 20%, 500,000, 600,000, sort of. The number of bank tellers per branch dropped by 50%, but the number of bank branches more than doubled. Therefore, And so that story to me encapsulates this whole notion of what has happened with the world work, which is any simple explanation belays the mass complexity that goes on in labor resource planning across an economy. It is not as simple as this new tech exists, therefore that job is going to go. It just isn't. And it doesn't happen very quickly if there are job losses. And we can go through example after example after example because I want people to get out of this freak out phase as quickly as possible. Because the phase is we are going into this fourth industrial revolution, whether you like it or not, it's happening. And so how do we best plan for ourselves, for our families, for our communities, for our country? How do we best take advantage of these trends and changes? Well, first, let's be thoughtful about it and let's have a discussion. And that's what I hope to accomplish with the book. Absolutely fantastic. Well, I'm going to ask you, Jeff, If you had the power to grant a particular skill or insight to all of humanity, what would that skill or insight be? And how do you imagine it would impact the individuals and perhaps even society at large? Well, here I will give you a softer answer than looking at BLS data. I will say the power to be inquisitive and to question I am very afraid societally that we're falling into this notion of listening to false prophets and not being intellectually curious and inquisitive. And it makes me very concerned because we have real challenges in front of us, whether that's 
climate change, whether that's how do we adjust to this industrial revolution, whether those are geopolitical challenges for the United States. And it saddens me that we are fighting with each other over, I'm going to say silly things, because these are not the real threats we face. And we need to be thoughtful about the real threats we face and take them on together. And we're not right now. And that concerns me. I love that, Jeff. And you know, I'm finding myself thinking about Adam Grant, who wrote Think Again. I'm thinking about Danny Kahneman, who describes System 1 and System 2 thinking, our abilities to answer quickly and versus thinking slowly. Thinking about Alex Trebek, who apparently, I'm going to paraphrase it, was interested in things that he wasn't even interested in. That's how curious he was. So to that blessing that you've just kind of conferred upon my listeners, I hope that those seeds of curiosity, willingness to muse, willingness to tolerate ambiguity and still think come about. So Jeff, it's been a blast getting to know your work. I recommend your book, The End of Jobs. And I'm just delighted to have had this time with you. Such a pleasure. Thank you so much. This was really, really wonderful. Right on, man. This is Dr. Adam Dorsey thanking you for listening to Super Psyched. If you know anyone who might like it or who might benefit from listening, share it. And if you like the episode, please hit subscribe.